Let's open up our Bibles again to the book of Exodus in chapter 3. And we're going to look one last time at verses 1 through 6. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We've seen that Moses, now 80 years old, is shepherding the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro, in the land called Midian. Moses has likely given up on any hope of ever seeing his fellow Israelites saved from their bondage in Egypt. Uh, He, at least by his hands, at least by his hands. Uh, he's living out his remaining years here in Midian when suddenly God calls Moses to a new purpose. So let's look at these six verses one, one more time. This is the word of God. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Well, last time we looked at the identity of this one who is speaking to Moses out of the bush. And we saw that he is identified here as the angel of the Lord, but that the rest of Scripture teaches that this is indeed the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, that this was our Savior speaking to Moses out of the middle of this bush in a flame of fire. This morning we want to look at what he says. What does he say? Moses sees the bush and he begins to come near this is a strange thing. This bush is on fire, but it's, it's not being burnt up. It's not being consumed. And, and as Moses begins to approach the bush, this voice comes out from the bush. Moses, Moses. And obviously, it, it grabs his attention. It, it stops Moses in his tracks. It's one thing to see a burning bush. It's another thing to be addressed by a burning bush by name. Moses says, here I am. Um, We read those words again and again in the Old Testament when people encounter God. Here I am. Uh, These words mean, you have my attention. I am ready to hear what you have to say to me. Oh God. I, I hope that's the spirit we have when we come in here on Sunday mornings. Here I am, God. We know you're here in power. 
Here I am. What do you have to say to me this morning, God? What did God say to Moses? He said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. A very famous verse. Many, many sermons preached on this verse. Many songs written about this verse. What does God mean when He speaks of holy ground? That's what I want us to look at this morning. Number one, to put it very simply, holy ground means ground set apart by God. That's the the most basic meaning of this word holy. To be holy is to be set apart. Something is holy when it is consecrated or set apart by God for a special purpose. Now, this word holy has not appeared in our Bible since Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, we saw this word holy. We have not yet seen it all the way until we get to this passage about holy ground. Where did we see it in Genesis 2? God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. What did that mean? It meant that God took the seventh day, He distinguished it from the other days of the week. God God made the seventh day different from the other days. He, He set it apart. And that day was to be especially blessed by God. That day was to be set apart for devotion to God. That's exactly the idea here with holy ground. There are 36 billion acres of land on this earth. 36 billion acres. But here where Moses is standing, in this little piece of ground, God says, I have set this apart for me. And thus... Moses, take off your sandals. Now, why does Moses need to take off his sandals? He needs to take them off for the same reason that you might ask people to take off their shoes before they come into your house. Uh, We don't want them to track in dirt or mud into your freshly vacuumed living room or or wherever it might be. Uh, This piece of land was set apart by God from all the other land of the world And God does not want Moses to bring in on his sandals any of the soil from that other common land. It is not to come into his holy land. And of course what God is doing here is he's making a point. What God has made holy, we are not to defile. What God has made holy, we are not to make impure. But why was this particular piece of ground holy ground. There's no indication that this ground was holy ground before this day. Had Moses spoken to the nearest residents of a village nearby, they they probably would not have been able to tell him about this holy piece of ground where this this bush was at Mount Horeb. So, So why is this ground suddenly set apart by God as holy? And the answer is that this ground is holy because of what God is going to do there. In other words, this ground is not holy because of something God did there in the past. This ground is holy because of what God is going to do on this ground in the future. You see, Moses is speaking with God, or at this moment, God is speaking with Moses at Mount Horeb. 
But what's the other name for Mount Horeb? It's Sinai. This is Mount Sinai. In just a matter of months, Moses is going to be right back here. And this time, the entire nation of Israel is going to be with him. And it's going to be right here that God is going to make a covenant with Israel. He's going to constitute them as a nation. He's going to speak to them from this mountain with with tremblings and and earthquakes and fire and thunder. Uh, Verse 1 calls this mountain the mountain of God because of what God is going to do at this mountain in just a few months. But dear friends, as great as God's covenant with Israel is going to be, even that is not the main reason that this is called holy ground. What does God tell Moses? He says, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. It was the presence of God that made this ground now holy. And so here's our second truth about holy ground. Wherever God dwells in his special presence is holy. Wherever God dwells in His special presence is holy. Later in Exodus, we're going to see God give lots of instructions about building His tabernacle. This is a fancy tent. And God's going to give very detailed commands about how His tabernacle is to be constructed and everything that should take place in and around the sacred tent. But at the end of the day... What is going to make the tabernacle a holy place? What is going to make the tabernacle different from every other tent in the nation of Israel? Exodus 29, verse 43, There I will meet with the people of Israel. It shall be sanctified by my glory. What sets apart God's temple, God's tent, God's tabernacle from the other tents? The glory of God will be there in power. It will be God's special presence that makes that tent a holy tent. This has some awesome implications for us. Here is our third truth. Are you ready? You, as a Christian, are holy. You are holy ground. Why? Because just as God came to dwell at Horeb, and it became holy ground, and just as God came to dwell in the tent called the tabernacle, and it became holy, so the Bible says that if you're a Christian, God has now come in His special presence to dwell in you. God has set apart a people for Himself. You have been consecrated. You have been set apart. You have been distinguished from all the people of the world. You're different. And what makes you different if you're a Christian from all the other people of the world? It's this. God Himself lives in you. His special presence in you 
1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You're a temple. You're a tabernacle. You're a Mount Horeb. You're holy ground. Now, our first response to that ought to be sheer wonder and amazement. When am I that God would come and dwell in me? He is almighty, the sovereign over all things, the one who spoke the galaxies and supernovas and black holes into existence. And I am a measly, tiny speck of dust in this universe. What's more, he is the holy holy, holy God. And my heart has been a fountain of pride and greed and lust and selfishness. Dear Christian, let this thought rest upon you for a moment. That God has come to dwell in you. Our God is an all-consuming fire. And the all-consuming fire has come to live in you and you're not consumed. Only by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, God in you is producing spiritual life. You have the fire of His love bursting forth in you. You have fruit of the Spirit coming forth from Him in you. There are few things more astounding, there are few things more life-changing than to come to grips with the fact that we now have God dwelling in us. As Paul said, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Our second response to this should be to think about what it means for our daily lives. Just think about it. Here at the burning bush, Moses is on holy ground. Nothing is to defile the holy ground. Moses, take your sandals off. Don't track in other stuff into holy ground. At the tabernacle, everything that was to come into contact with the tabernacle had to be cleansed, purified, and consecrated. If you were to bring a lamb to be sacrificed at the tabernacle, it better be without blemish. A Levite with a birth defect could not be a priest. Those who were to enter the holy place had to be set apart by God to do so. And they had to be ritually cleansed before they could enter. The bread in the tabernacle was holy bread. The lampstand was a holy lampstand. The curtains had to be holy curtains. Everything had to be pure. Everything had to be clean. Everything had to be devoted to God. To bring something unclean into the special presence of God was called an abomination. Now, dear Christian, what does it mean that you are that holy place? Colossians 3.12 Put on then as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 
In other words, since you are now the burning bush, since you are now the tabernacle, since you are now the temple, you must live like it. You are the holy place. Don't defile the holy place. Live in a way that befits the house of God that you are. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that sexual sins are so terrible. He says when you engage in fornication or you engage in adultery, you're not simply uniting your body with somebody else's body. You're taking the very temple of God and uniting it to sin. The body that is now God's dwelling place, devoted to His service, is being given to the service of Satan, the service of the flesh, the service of immorality. It's as serious as when the Greek ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, he went to the table in Jerusalem and he went into the most holy place and he set up an altar to Zeus there and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. Many people think this is part of what Daniel was talking about when he talked about the abomination of desolation. That there would be something so abominable to God that would happen in His temple that God would destroy the temple. The dwelling place of God is to be devoted to Him in every way. It is to be holy in every way. It is to be completely given to Him. You are now that place. Dear Christian, have you come to grips with the reality of what it means that God dwells in you? There's a lot more we could say along these lines, but we need to move on. Our fourth point, here it is. The church of Christ is holy. The church of Christ is holy. You see, the ground Moses was standing on was holy because God was there in His special presence. The tabernacle, the temple, your body, these things are made holy because God is there in His special presence. But the New Testament emphasizes again and again that God's people, united as one body, have the special presence of God in an even more powerful way, in an even more special way than was ever known in the temple and than is ever known in one individual Christian. Christians gather together, become a holy place unto God, greater than any other thing or place in this universe. Mount Hermon, when we gather together as a church for worship... It is not the same thing as the Ruritan Club down the street gathering together. When we gather together, God Himself comes to join with us. We are the bricks of the temple. We sit in our seats and the bricks come together. The temple is formed and God comes by His Spirit and through the Word. And He is here. Jesus said, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am with them. In the worship hour, and whenever we are together as fellow believers, we become a temple unto God, a holy place. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Paul says to the Corinthian Christians, Do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple, singular, and that God's Spirit dwells in you, plural? He's saying, to, we would say y'all, and if we translated that into southern anyway you get the idea it's it's together you become a holy temple unto god 
Do you want to enter the holiest place on earth? Do you want to come into the presence of God in the place where He dwells with the most power on this planet? You're here. You're here. Mount Hermon, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. We don't always feel like it, do we? We don't always sense it. But even if we don't know it, even when we're not seen with the eyes of faith, God is here with us as we worship Him together. Now one great implication of this, Paul draws it out in 1 Corinthians 3, is this. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you, plural, are that temple. Some here in the church of Corinth were causing divisions. They were threatening the church. They were creating strife in the church. Paul says, church, you are a temple unto God. If you destroy the temple of God, He will destroy you. The lesson, we must be careful with how we treat the church of God. Whether it's our local church or other local churches, be careful how you talk about the church of God. Be careful with how you treat the people of God. Local churches are not simply local community groups. They are living, dynamic, holy, dwelling places of God. And God loves His house. He loves His people. He loves to bless them. And if you go stirring up strife, if you go stirring up division, when you're the cause of causing His people to split apart, watch out. He will not take it lightly. Fifth and last point under this heading of holy ground is this one. Those who would draw near to God must not do so recklessly, but with awe and humility and reverence. God tells Moses to stop where he is and to come no nearer. In verse 6, we see Moses afraid. He's hiding his face. He doesn't want to look at God. He is encountering the glory of God with humility. And every time in the Bible, people come into contact with the special presence of God. It is not a casual thing. Ezekiel falls on his face before the Lord. Isaiah cries out, Woe is me! Woe, doom, destruction. He's saying, Destruction on me! I am in the presence of God. Friends, if we think we can approach God casually, we don't know God. Yes, we can approach God with boldness and confidence because of our Lord Jesus Christ, but don't ever approach God with irreverence. When we come together to worship, This is not to be a place of silliness. This is to be a place of joyful reverence and adoration. I know it's popular in some circles for churches to gather together and for people to pray in very casual language. I've heard people, even in worship services, pray like, Yo Pops, Justin here. Wanted to say some thanks to you. 
That is never the way to approach God in his holy place. Those prayers are awfully close to blasphemy. God is not your buddy. He is your father. He loves you dearly, but he is also almighty God. He holds the fate of every human being in his hands, including your life and my life. He is infinitely worthy of your love, your joy, your devotion, and all. Even as a Christian, don't lose what it is to tremble in the presence of God. If we want to see revival happen in our land, we need more Christians trembling before God. And until that happens, I don't see much revival coming our way. Now, before we leave these six verses, next week we'll move on to to the next verses. There is one last thing I want us to see. I want you to see how God identifies himself to Moses. He says, I am the God of your father. The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And that identification is very important. In fact, we hear it here, and it's going to be repeated again and again and again and again and again in the Old Testament. Usually the word father will be plural. Uh, Look down at verse 15. It's in verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is my name, the God of your fathers. What is God teaching here? I see at least two truths being communicated that are important for us. Number one, the God they are to trust is the God that their fathers trusted and found faithful. The God that they are to trust is the God that their fathers trusted and found faithful. This is a God who has been put to the test and proven. Moses, I am not some pagan deity speaking to you out of the burning bush. I am not a God of the Midianites. You're in the land of Midian? Maybe this is a Midianite God. No, Moses, I am the God of your fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can be called as witnesses to their descendants Their stories crying out, God is good, God is wise, God is powerful, trust Him. In fact, Jesus quotes this verse to the Sadducees because they did not believe in life after death. They believed once you die, that's end, it's over. And Jesus points out that God in this passage doesn't say, I am the God or I am the one who was the God of Abraham, was the God of Isaac, was the God of Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Meaning they're still alive and I'm still their God. They have entered the heavenly country. They have received the prize of their faith. And their example calls on their descendants to imitate them. This was powerful to Israel. Remember your fathers. Follow the God of your fathers. And so I simply want to ask you, Mount Hermon, how is our God the God of your fathers? How is God the God of your fathers? Who are those in your past who have had a special connection to us and now stand as witnesses to us saying, God is faithful, trust Him. 
God uses the singular to Moses because Moses had a father who knew the real God and trusted him, Amram. He's saying, Moses, I am the God of your dad. Remember how your dad trusted me? Now you trust me. And many of you in this room, you've had parents, you've had grandparents, you've had great-grandparents. And you can think about their faith. You can think about how how they knew the Lord, how they walked with Him. You saw the character of their lives. You watched as God brought your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents through many trials, how He shaped them into godly men and women. How many of us in this room have family members in our past who are shining testimonies to us of God's goodness and God's faithfulness? And the God that they followed, the God that they knew, is the God you know. He's not a different God. He's the same Do you ever think about this? Do you ever think about the fact that the God we're worshiping right now is also the very same God who was God of our ancestors? Certainly as Christians living in the United States, we have a special connection to those founding fathers of our country who were men of faith. Not all the founding fathers were men of faith. But certainly there were many people instrumental in the early history of this land who were true believers. A few Wednesday nights ago, we talked about the pilgrims at Plymouth Rock. We learned about their, their, their faith in God. These families that were willing to cross the Atlantic Ocean to flee persecution. They were going to follow the Lord Jesus wherever He took them. We talked about the hard winters they suffered, the disease, the death they endured as a community. And yet how it was through them living together as Christians, encouraging one another, studying the Word together, that God sustained them. Folks, the God who heard the desperate prayers of the pilgrims is the God that we now pray to. We can look back at our Baptist forefathers. Certainly it's a tragedy that most Baptists today don't even know who their forefathers in the faith were. We need to do a better job at teaching and remembering the stories of John Bunyan and Benjamin Keach and Adoniram and Ann Judson and John Dagg and Basil Manley Sr. and Basil Manley Jr. Bunyan and Spurgeon are probably the most famous Baptists that we look back to as our forefathers in the faith. And they call on us to trust our God. They're witnesses to us. And of course, we get to claim Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob too, don't we? (laughs) Right? Galatians says it is those of faith who are the children of Abraham. Abraham is our father. Isaac is our father. Jacob is our father. Testifying to us, follow God. He is faithful. The God who spoke more than 4,000 years ago to a moon worshiper in Ur and forever changed this world is the God that is at work in your life and in my life. And so your God is the God of your fathers. Let that encourage you. And then, second major truth that God is teaching by revealing Himself this way is that He is a God of covenant. He is a God of covenant. He is a God who has made promises in the past and He keeps His promises. Moses is being called by God to a work that is a part of a plan to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses, I am the God of them. I made them a promise. I'm going to work through you to accomplish that promise. 
And in the same way, God is working through us right now to accomplish His promise of building His church and bringing His people safely to heaven. God has promised all His people that Christ will build His church and the light of the gospel will never be snuffed out until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. And so, to fulfill the promises that God made to our fathers, He's calling us to the work of obedience, the work of faithfulness, the work of ministry and evangelism and mission. And so I close with this. Our God has put before us a new covenant. Many of us have already entered into it, but it may be that some of you in this room have not entered into it. It is God's promise that everyone who believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. If we will turn from our sins and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we can have assurance that we will go to heaven and be with Him forever. Have you received that promise yet? Have you taken God at His word and followed the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been baptized in the name of Jesus? Are you in a healthy church where you're following the Lord Jesus Christ with others? If not, let me strongly, strongly urge you to do so. Mount Hermon, we are on holy ground right now. God is speaking to us, and He calls us, like our fathers, to trust Him. Will we trust Him Will we follow him no matter what the cost? I pray that we will. Let's pray.